Hello, I'm Voice Print volunteer Donica Conge. With me today is Martin Downey, and join us now for Behind the Wheel, Voice Print's program for the auto enthusiast. We begin with this story, titled A Half Million Dollar Car Bids Farewell, by Mark Richardson from the August 7th edition of the Toronto Star. There aren't many SLR McLarens trolling around Toronto. Very few, says the guy from Mercedes-Benz. They're not like Ferraris or Aston Martins. What he's trying to suggest is that the half-million-dollar Mercedes-Benz SLR McLaren is super-exclusive, a true collector's piece. Now that it's no longer made, he may have a point. The problem is that when it was being built, from 2003 right up until this summer, for a planned production run of seven years, not enough people wanted to buy it. Why not? It's a lovely car, for sure. While I was sitting in traffic on Spadina Avenue last week, a clean-cut middle-aged man felt the need to walk across a lane of cars to lean into the top-down roadster I was driving and offer a compliment. That's a beautiful car. A beautiful car, he said, before turning back to the sidewalk without a backward glance. Of course, it's more than just beautiful. Automakers all like to have something truly special in their lineup, even if it is outrageously expensive or limited in numbers, so that buyers of their lower-priced vehicles can feel related to such an aspirational product. Because it sits at the very top of the line, it's known as a halo car. Since the SLR is more than twice the price of the next most costly Benz, it easily assumes that crown for Mercedes. The SLR is big, at more than four and a half meters long. Close to a meter of that is unseen by the low-slung driver. It is not a car that should be driven nose-first against a parking curb. The long hood needs to accommodate the 5.5-liter V8 engine that sits entirely behind the front axle, an arrangement intended to provide a slight rear weight bias for more predictable handling. And yes, it's low. When I sat in the thin, molded driver's seat, my pants seemed to skim the ground. At six feet tall, my eye level was just a meter above the asphalt, which, to be clear about this, is less than the height of an 18-wheeler's tires. It's just as well the car compensates for many things with more than 620 horsepower. When it was introduced as a 2003 production car, Mercedes announced plans to sell 500 a year. But it's fallen far short, selling perhaps half that. The hard-riding coupe was discontinued in 2007 and replaced with a more powerful and expensive 722 version, which sold out its limited run of 150. The 650-horsepower car is named after the 300 SLR number 722, with which Sterling Moss won the 1955 Mil Miglia rally. More to the point, the topless roadster, which Mercedes said would never be made, was brought out in 2007 to replace the regular coupe. It weighs about 60 kilograms more and has been selling fairly well to the wealthy Californians who live more for appearance than track times. But the convertible I drove last week was discontinued early this summer, replaced by a super-limited run of 75 Sterling Moss Specials, twice the cost and more than 100 kilograms lighter than the 722, thanks to a lack of air conditioning, roof, and even a windscreen. You'll need goggles. Talk about a car for purists. So where does this leave the -the run-of-the-mill SLR McLaren? 
Out to pasture, that's where. Which is too bad, because as I say, it's a lovely car. Quirky, but lovely. It's a car for performance driving, not leisurely cruising. But it's not a Ferrari 599 GT or a Lamborghini Murcielago, either of which win the exotic Italian stakes. It was designed by the legendary Gordon Murray, responsible for the just-as-legendary McLaren F1, who demanded lightness above all. SLR stands for Sport Light Racing. This explains why the car has thin carbon fiber back seats instead of air scarf seats that warm the neck, available on other open Mercedes. They don't bend, though they tilt and raise and lower, and now for the American market are available in double wide. Where there's a will, there's a way, says the man from Mercedes. But Murray left during the car's development, supposedly arguing over what he considered the compromises that Mercedes was insisting upon for drivability. He probably lost the battle over the unnecessarily complicated brake-by-wire sensitronic brake control, which effectively muffles feedback from the massive ceramic brakes. Full-on, they're great, and good 1200C. Any less than that, and they're never quite right. Tough to judge for the right amount of pressure. He probably lost the battle, too, over the final refined drive, which gives a comfortable ride in climate-conditioned Bluetooth luxury. The Roadster apparently has softer suspension than the Coupe, presumably to satisfy those double-wide Californians, though it tips the hat to performance with lack of coffee cup holders, door cubbies, or even an iPod connector. The stereo does, though, for some bizarre reason, include a cassette tape deck. This does not mean it's a gentle, easy-going drive. Make no mistake, this can be a loud and violent car. Stamp on the gas to wring your money's worth out of the $5,000 federal gas guzzler levy, and the side-mounted pipes will roar like a guttural banshee. You'll rocket to 100 kilometers per hour in 3.8 seconds. Keep your foot pinned and the cops will clock you at 200 kilometers per hour, just 10.6 seconds from the traffic light. Don't even think about saving gas. You'll be somewhere north of 20 liters per hundred, 14 miles per gallon, even without the theatrics. Turn off the ESP control, and the $800 a piece back tires will shred as the car hops madly in its fight for purchase. Grip the wheel tight. This wide-tracked monster will skitter left and right as your hands twitch from the G-forces. Squint through the heat haze rising from the hood vents, and the road ahead will ripple like a desert mirage. The SLR will hit 300 kilometers an hour in less than half a minute and not top out until somewhere over 330 kilometers an hour. Then those humongous brakes will haul you back down again before you know it. You'll be impressed, but OPP Commissioner Julian Fantino won't be, and nor will the judge. That's when you'll learn the hard facts about depreciation of initial value over time as the car sits parked for a year. New SLRs have never wavered from their current base price of 495000 U.S. dollars. Second-hand SLRs drop their value rapidly, though. After all, the market has a number of options for the well-heeled prospective SLR buyer. Aside from the aforementioned 599 GT and the Murcielago, Bentley offers the undeniably gorgeous and equally powerful Continental GT speed convertible for considerably less money. Similarly, Aston Martin will sell you its Vanquish with enough left over to fund seven years of medical school. Wait a year or so, and Mercedes will sell you the smaller, in-house-designed SLS AMG two-seater, 
designed to assume the halo with its gullwing doors and familiar, but even more highly tuned, 6.3 liter V8. And if you really want to save money, you can get a similar experience driving a Dodge Viper or a Ford GT. As an added bonus, their spark plugs won't cost $10,000 to change every four years. The mid-mounted engine must be dropped to access the rear four cylinders. But their doors won't attract attention like those sexy butterfly doors. And their hoods won't say Mercedes, and their side panels McLaren. And if you can afford to drop a half million dollars on something because you like it, maybe that's important. The man from Mercedes thinks so anyway. Mark Richardson was the author of that article, titled, A Half-Million-Dollar Car Bids Farewell, from the August 7th edition of the Toronto Star. You're listening to Behind the Wheel on Voice Print. 2010 Ford Fusion Hybrid, More Hype Than Help, is the title of this column by Peter Bleakney from the August 8th edition of the Toronto Star. I'll be the first to admit I'm not completely sold on this whole hybrid thing. Sporting their green halos, gas-electric hybrids are hyped to the high heavens in North America, and they're generally perceived as the automotive white knight that's come to save the planet. Problem is, with hybrids taking only a tiny slice of the market, and many offering marginal real-world economy gains, the polar bears won't be dancing a jig anytime soon. Additionally, hybrids are technologically complex, pricey, carrying an environmentally toxic battery pack, and in my experience, don't return the promised fuel economy unless you drive with all the alacrity of a sedated sloth. And extreme hybrids take the Toyota Prius and Honda Insight are pretty joyless to pilot. So why am I liking the 30,664-2010 Ford Fusion Hybrid so much? First off, the bones of the refreshed 2010 Fusion are good. This four-door midsize sedan feels solid and goes down the road with a planted Euro feel. The fabric seats are extremely comfortable. The ride is creamy smooth, yet body motions are well controlled. It feels good in the corners and there's real steering feel, a rarity in hybrids. Best of all, Ford's next-generation hybrid system delivers the goods in a linear and surprisingly transparent manner that doesn't, well, ruin the driving experience. And when I say goods, I saw 5.8 liters, 100 kilometers, 49 miles per gallon on my watch. This is the most fuel-efficient hybrid sedan on the market, rated at 4.6 liters, 100 kilometers, 61 miles per gallon city, and 5.4 liters, 100 kilometers, 53 miles per gallon highway. The $30,900 Toyota Camry Hybrid claims 5.7 liters, 49 miles per gallon for both city and highway. The $32,998 Nissan Altima Hybrid is rated at 5.7 liters city, 49 miles per gallon, and 5.9 liter, 47 miles per gallon highway. Ford's hybrid powertrain consists of a 2.5-liter Atkinson cycle, inline four assisted by a 70-kilowatt electric motor. Net output is 191 horsepower and 136 pound-foot at 2,225 
RPM delivered to the rear wheels via an electronically controlled CVT continuously variable transmission. A separate generator motor is used to recharge the 275-volt nickel metal hydrid battery pack that lives under the floor behind the rear seats. This pack is 24% smaller, 20% more powerful, and requires less cooling than Ford's previous generation pack. As with all hybrids, most of this recharging is done under braking, capturing kinetic energy that is normally lost to heat. Ford claims its regenerative braking reclaims up to 94% of this energy. Unlike other hybrids I've driven, the Fusion's braking is smooth and progressive. More efficient climate control system, electronic throttle control, fuel ratio monitoring, and a host of other tweaks contribute to its class-leading economy. Overseeing all this is Ford's latest vehicle system controller. Open the Fusion hybrid store and two crisp LCD displays flanking the central speedometer show green grass and a blue sky. Ah, I feel better about myself already. A twist of the key beckons silence. The display changes to one of four selectable settings offering varying degrees of powertrain information and coaching for more fuel-efficient motoring. A clever leafy display encourages the latter. The greener you drive, the more foliage you grow. Slip the fusion into gear and it slides away silently. The gas motor starts up soon after, but depending on battery charge level and the weight of your right foot, many local errands can be run on a battery power alone. Once at speed, the fusion will run up to 75 kilometers per hour on electricity, and indeed, I was always surprised and delighted to observe my zero emissions progress as indicated by the power delivery graph. Eking out a little more time under battery power is a rewarding challenge. The Fusion's gas engine cycles on and off much more frequently than in other hybrids, but the process is so seamless you're never aware of it. The only downside is some engine moan when calling for brisk acceleration, thank the CVT transmission. Under most circumstances, however, the Fusion's cabin is quieter than a Scottish pay toilet, and with the instant torque of the electric motor, the cart never feels outgunned. The 2010 Fusion's handsome new body panels give it substance. My neighbors thought it was a Mercedes before, spying the giant Gillette Razorisk Ford grille, and the interior, while not particularly exciting, benefits from higher quality soft-touch plastics. My only gripe is the signal wiper stock that's angled up at 45 degrees. Not good for those who keep their hands at the recommended 9 and 3 o'clock positions. The Fusion Hybrid comes standard with sync media interface, 17-inch alloys, dual-zone climate control, reverse sensing, SOS post-crash alert system, 110-volt outlet, and 6-CD audio. My tester was fitted with optional Sony sound with sunroof, $1,600, navigation, $2,100, and driver's vision group, $1,400, that adds rear-view camera and blind spot detection. 
The best compliment I can give the 2010 Ford Fusion Hybrid is it's the first gas electric vehicle I was sorry to see leave my driveway. Okay, so we know it works. Does it make financial sense? The similarly equipped Fusion SEL with a 2.5 liter 4 and new for 2010 six speed automatic is rated at 9.4 liters per 100 city, 30 miles per gallon, and 6.4 liters per 100 kilometers highway, 44 miles per gallon, and lists for $25,096. That's a $5,568 savings. If most of your driving is on the highway, the 1 liter 100 kilometer advantage of the hybrid will be a mere drop in the jerry can. The 4.8 liter 100 kilometer advantage in the city is more meaningful. Of course, it's nigh impossible to attain published fuel economy figures, but all things being equal, the fusion hybrid should consume 2.9 fewer liters per 100 kilometers than the fusion SEL in mixed driving. Based on a 20,000 kilometer year and a regular gas at a buck a liter, you're saving about $580 a year. Hmm. Your financial advisor would laugh at you out of his office. But for most hybrid buyers, this is the cost of being green. And my hat is off to Ford for advancing the hybrid game with this fine driving family hauler. 2010 Ford Fusion Hybrid More Hype Than Help was the title of that column by Peter Bleakney from the August 8th edition of the Toronto Star. You're behind the wheel on voice print. I'm your volunteer reader, Martin Downey. Andrew Meeson is the author of this article titled Strange Behavior on the World's Roads from the August 8th edition of the Toronto Star. Next time you're stuck in traffic on the Don Valley Parkway or Gardner Expressway, Tom Vanderbilt wants you to think about the world of the ant. In his book Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do, which is out in paperback this week, the New York-based technology writer draws many parallels between insect behavior and how drivers interact, or don't. In his book, Vanderbilt calls the New World Army ant possibly the world's best commuters. In their daily search for food, these insects, nearly blind, create complex series of trails that are essentially three-lane highways with well-defined sets of rules. Two lanes have ants heading out, while one lane has them heading back to the nest with food. The secret to the ridiculous efficiency of army ant traffic, Vanderbilt writes, is that they cooperate for what's best for the entire nest, unlike humans. Human traffic is non-cooperative, with people wanting to move where they want and when they want without regard to anyone else's desires. To impose a measure of ant-like efficiency on human drivers, Traffic engineers use signals and road construction, not always successfully. The insect comparison is just one of many fascinating insights into driving throughout Vanderbilt's book, which was a top ten seller in Canada and the U.S. Vanderbilt tells you why you shouldn't be in such a rush to merge lanes when one is closed, why women cause more congestion than men, and above all, why you should never drive in a pickup on Super Bowl Sunday in Montana with a divorced dentist named Fred. As a writer who works from home, Vanderbilt takes a fresh approach to what is a numbingly familiar activity in cities like Toronto. He also continually updates matters on his compelling blog, HowWeDrive.com. 
Maybe because I don't commute, I was able to treat it as a strange activity, he said in a phone interview. Though we may be bored silly by commuting, the act of driving is the single most complicated function most of us do in a day. We have to absorb and discard a great deal of information and make snap decisions every second. When we forget that driving isn't necessarily as easy as it seems to be, we get into trouble, he said. A fruitless search on Amazon for info on the subject was the impetus for his book, which led to research all over the world, including India and Europe, where experiments in traffic safety have produced some counterintuitive results. Places like the English town of Ashford and the Dutch village of Udahaski have created confusion by blending the realm of the car, pedestrian, and the cyclist. That includes things like making roadways too narrow for two cars and a bicycle to pass at the same time, lowering curbs so sidewalks aren't as clearly delineated, and using different colors of pavement. It meant people would have to interact and therefore slow down. As Vanderbilt writes, it's when drivers feel the most in danger that they are actually safer because they slow down and drive more carefully. Vanderbilt also tackles the design of cars. People become used to new safety devices and start driving with them in mind. For example, both ABS and mounting a brake light over the rear window cut collisions initially, but over time accident rates rose again because the shorter stopping distances offered by ABS resulted in drivers following closer and because they stopped noticing the brake light. The solution to our traffic woes, it seems, is to strike a balance between regulation and imposing certain incentives, such as congestion pricing. I'm not a libertarian, said Vanderbilt. I certainly didn't set out in pursuit of some right-wing philosophy. Andrew Meeson was the author of that article titled Strange Behavior on the World's Roads from the August 8th edition of the Toronto Star. Nasty Side of Parking Lot Wars is the title of this column by Lorraine Sommerfeld from the August 8th edition of the Toronto Star. Just when I thought parking couldn't get any more hostile, I've been introduced to the prepaid ticket. Because overpriced parking should always be as inconvenient as possible, you already have to wedge your car next to a stupid pole because there are never any spots. To remember not to lose the little ticket, to try to locate the stairs or elevators before those shady-looking characters come to mug you, and to arrive at your destination not looking sweaty and scared. Personally, I like the person in the little booth. In the midst of a concrete jungle filled with the echoes of cars spinning upward and upward as they pray for reverse lights, that person in the booth was a little bolt of humanity. They controlled the button on the arm that could set you free. They could make change. They could wait patiently while you dug quarters out of the passenger seat to pay. They could even magically lift the bar if the tears threatened as you realized your kids had taken the last $20 out of your wallet. Now that is all gone, and not with a bang, but a whimper. An infrequent garage parker, I get fouled up by the new rules. Now it's not enough to locate your actual car. You have to also locate a machine to pay in advance. And you must find your car first because you only have a certain length of time before the ticket expires. Do not ask me how I know this. Just trust me. There are some garages that let you pay at the exit with a credit card. I watched a woman at the airport the other day discover that the airport is not such a place. 
As she sat at the gate, backing up a few centimeters, then creeping forward, I could practically smell her frustration over the exhaust fumes. The people behind her were just fuming. The poor sod had come to pick up after a flight. I told him just to do loop-de-loops until I came out because airport parking notches up at about the same speed as a taxi meter. I'm sure there are cheaper flights between Toronto and Montreal than there are parking rates as you wait for someone to claim a bag. Of course he parked. As we approached a garage, I asked what floor he'd parked on. Four, he asked me. At the fourth level, he decided the paint blobs were the wrong color, so we went up to five. Start hitting the remote, I told him. This is my secret weapon for finding the van in these places. The sound bounces off the walls. As I said it, I realized a dozen other blasts were going off, some locking, some locating, all confusing. Beeping parked cars were now as ubiquitous as crocheted pom-poms on aerials at the mall on Seniors Day. As we hopped in the van, I peered through the windshield, desperately looking for a list of rules. I don't know why I do this. A place that I swear moves your vehicle from one place to another behind your back while you're away is surely not going to offer up assistance on how to escape. No signs. I think we can pay with a credit card at the out, I told him. I think we can't, he replied. I noticed a woman crying at one exit, her car like a wild animal with its paw in a trap. I think you're right, I told him, to his utter delight. Nasty Side of Parking Lot Wars was the title of that column by Lorraine Sommerfeld from the August 8th edition of the Toronto Star. You've been listening to Behind the Wheel on Voice Print. For Donna Kakongi, I'm volunteer reader Martin Downey. The studio producer for this program was Paula Deneen. Thank you for listening to Voice Prints.